0: Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you that the Bible is a precious treasure. Father, thank you that it speaks to us of the Lord Jesus. And Father, as we see this powerful vision this morning, Father, help us, uh, not just to fill our heads with knowledge, Father, but to love and to serve the Lord Jesus better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I can still remember the first Bible study I ever went to on the book of Revelation. Revelation made simple, they said. Come and understand it better, they said. I was 19. I left that study after two hours, with a mind filled with words that I couldn't pronounce, let alone understand, and I felt more bamboozled than when I went in. I mean, bamboozled is too small a term, really. I was perplexed. I left that study thinking, not only could I not understand the book of Revelation, well, I left thinking that I could never understand the Book of Revelation, and that no one ever could. One of the things that they'd said to encourage us was that even the great John Calvin never wrote a commentary on it because he claimed not to understand it. I mean, how is that an encouragement to try and understand the book? So our goal through our series, our title with this series, is Revelation made slightly less difficult. Okay, I'm not going to say we're going to make it simple, but hopefully we'll make it slightly less difficult. And my goal is not to fill your heads and your note paper with big words, but with a big vision of God. After all, this is a revelation, verse 1, of Jesus Christ. It's both from him and about him. And so through the series, I'm going to try to keep complicated words and ideas to a minimum, And if I use them, I'll try and explain them. I'm also going to try and spend more time preaching Revelation than preaching about Revelation. And all that stuff that we need to know about Revelation, I'm going to try and spread out through the series. So we don't have one big week where your mind sort of try and pop and explode. We're also going to have a Revelation breakfast in a few weeks' time. So you can ask some big questions uh, about the series so far. More details uh, to follow. But some things that you need to know as we start, there are four basic schools, approaches, ways of reading, Revelation. There are literally hundreds of variations and combinations of these four, but they're basically boiled down to these four. So you can make the book of Revelation, is a timeline, first coming, second coming. you can make it all about the past. Some think that it was all done and dusted by 70 AD when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. So think that actually Revelation's already done and dusted. You can make it all about the future. So we say that nearly everything in Revelation is about a period in history still to come. You can make it about a whole of history in between Christ's first and second coming, either in order like this one, looking for specific people and events in history, Or you can look at it in principles, so things that are happening during that time that apply to every age. And the more I've looked at it this week, the more that I've seen that there's something to commend each one. Even in the early church, three of those ideas existed, and there was a sort of spirit of mutual acceptance between the different groups, something that we should probably seek to copy, as we should have different opinions. The latecomer was the whole of history in order, that one. But that's because at that point in the early church there hadn't been a whole lot of history uh, to go through. And that particular view actually has an excellent pedigree. So, Jan Hus, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, Zindley, Luther, Knox, Wesley, Edwards, Whitfield, Spurgeon, something Calvin, but then, like I say, he said he didn't understand it. But that list has got to make you sit up and think that even if the early church didn't think that, there's quite a lot of people who did. And all the views have something to commend themselves, as we'll see as we go through. Because it's true that Revelation does contain prophecy about the future. But it's also true that Revelation is steeped in the imagery of the first century. It has a context to which it was written. It's also true that we can see the outworkings of what this book speaks about in history. History that has been and history that's still to come. Now I do favour one position, as will become clear as we go through, but we need to bear all these things in mind as we go through. There's good reason why Bible-believing Christians disagree on this, there's there's good things on each side. But as I said before, I don't just want to preach about Revelation, that's some of the things that will help us understand it, but all scripture is God-breathed and useful for us. The passage that we have before us is there to be useful, is there to be helpful. So let's dig into chapter 1 and see Revelation in action, how it works, and what it's got to show us today. So first of all, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Have a look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which would soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. The book is a revelation of... Of Jesus Christ. Now that phrase is ambiguous. It is Jesus' message that we're getting here. It's Jesus speaking. But like the rest of the Bible, this is not just from Jesus. This is actually about Jesus. And it's Jesus who takes centre stage in this first chapter. If you look at verses twelve to sixteen, I won't read them all to us, but you, you've got that wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus with, as a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. <coughs> the focus on the first chapter is this vision of Jesus. Now, if you're anything like me, as you read that passage in twelve to sixteen, it reminds you. I used to sing it. I used to sing it every week when I was uh, when I became a Christian. I was growing up as a teenager. You know, your feet before, right? and it, it sort of go. everyone's looking black. I should probably quote, um, I think it was Jarvis, not Jarvis Cocker, Joe Cocker. I uh, might be a little bit more familiar. But it goes through and gives you different features of the Lord Jesus feet like burnished bronze, eyes like burning fire. But we need to pause and think. As we read that description, is John saying this is really what Jesus looks like physically now? If we were to meet him in glory now, is this what he would look like? Is he giving us a physical description? It seems a little bit strange that at this point he would give us a physical description of Jesus. Well, actually, none of the Gospels do. John's Gospel doesn't give you a physical description of what Jesus looks like. That's why the paintings are all so different, aren't they, of all Jesus, apart from that he's wearing sandals and generally got long hair. But he doesn't really want to give us a physical description of Jesus. No, instead he's given us a sort of mashup of images from the Old Testament. It's mostly a mixture of Daniel's vision of a man in Daniel 10 and Daniel's vision of God in Daniel 7. That's why if you get the church emails, I should have a look at those two passages. He's sort of a son of man who at the same time is the ancient of days. So whatever else we want to take from this, we're going to go into more detail, whatever else we take from it, it's clear that John wants us to see that this is a sort of God-man. He's putting the image of God and mashing it up with the image of man. It's a God-man that we see here. And here, in that sense, John is only showing us what he shows us in John's Gospel. Jesus is God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. He's showing us truths that we see elsewhere in the New Testament, but he's doing it as though he's Ezekiel, or as though he's Daniel. So really what we're reading here is something else that we see in the Bible in the New Testament, but written as though it's Zechariah. You know, Ezekiel didn't write a gospel, but if he did, it would be the book of Revelation. And that should be a clue, a key to understanding what we're reading It's written like an Old Testament prophet, but it's telling us New Testament truths. So that's the broad picture of what we see. Old Testament language, but New Testament truths. That's the broad picture, but what about the specifics? What is it actually telling us about Jesus? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to do exactly what we would anywhere else in the Bible. When we find something that's tricky, what do we do? We understand scripture with scripture. And that's all we're going to do now. See the rest of the Bible, what the rest of the Bible has to say about each part of this mashup of Jesus' image there. Now this takes some work, but it's something that we can't do at home with a Bible and a concordance, or nowadays, you know, with a Bible app and a keyboard like I did at home. So what do we see? Well, first of all, we see that he's the son of man. So verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. Now this picks up on Daniel 7, and basically all the Gospels as well, since Jesus is referred to in that way. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man again, and again and again in the Bible, that's what his favourite term is for himself. But in doing so, he's reminding us of Daniel 7. Daniel 7, as a human being, he comes through the clouds to heaven and receives, Daniel 7, 14, dominion. And glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's who the son of man is in the Old Testament. He's an everlasting king, that all the nations will bow down and worship. And yet, he's a human being. He's a son of man. No wonder this is Jesus' favourite way of describing himself. It's talking about his uh, his standing as, as this wonderful, glorious king, but it's ambiguous enough that it won't get him in trouble for a long while. So he's the son of man, that's what it tells us here. But we're told the son of man is clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his waist. That's still verse 13. Now, this is not from Daniel 7, but from Daniel 10. This is what Daniel sees the man wearing there in Daniel 10. But why is he wearing it? It's all well and good saying, "Oh right, this is what the guy wears in Daniel 10. Right, sorted. Why is he wearing it in Daniel 10? Well, the man there is dressed in the garb of a high priest. That's what's being described. The word for the long robe is exclusively used in Greek for the priest's garments. And the sash or belt of gold was worn by the high priest in Leviticus 8. So, this is almost certainly a vision, if you like, of the temple with the lampstands there in the temple, the seven. And here is the high priest in the heavenly temple going amongst the lampstands, tending to the lampstands. So, Jesus here is pictured as a priest tending to the churches, to the lamps in the temple. We're told uh, in, uh, in um, uh, Helpfully at the end that the lamps are actually symbolising the churches. Helpfully, sometimes Revelation, when you don't think you're going to get it, Revelation tells you. So if you go right to the end, verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we know what the lampstands are because John tells us. So here, Jesus is this high priest who is going amongst the lampstands, tending to the lamps. We're told as well, in verse 14, that his hair, the hair of his head, were white, like white wool, like snow. Now, this is imagery from Daniel 7 again. But interestingly, not of the Son of Man, but of the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, God the Father, if you like. But here, the Son. Has white hair. It's supposed to point us to his his age, his wisdom, his eternity. The wool that we're told though, not just that they're white, which is what we see in, in Daniel, we're told that they're white like wool and snow. And that points us to Isaiah 1 verse 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So again, he's sort of pointing us to Old Testament imagery. There's that notion of purity, of holiness in that whiteness. And then, we're back from Daniel 7 back to Daniel, 9, Daniel 10. His eyes were like flames of fire. He's got like laser vision, burning eyes, that pierce things. He can see everything. His feet were like burnished bronze, really shiny, metal, solid feet. It's a really weird picture, isn't it? Now, some have commentated that in Daniel, this is in contrast to the statue of the kingdoms of the world that have feet of clay. So, the statue that had feet of clay was sort of unstable and could fall over. But here, Jesus has feet like burnished bronze, solid, one that will stand, that will not fall over. And they've been tested, refined in a furnace. This is a person who will not fall. This person is firmly established, he will not fail. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Could be Daniel 10 again, which has the sound of a multitude for the voice. Or it could be Ezekiel 43 verse 2, where the glory of the Lord is described as having the sound of many waters. That could work as well as all, uh, after all Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. Someone powerfully, overwhelmingly glorious as they speak. In his right hand we're told that he holds seven stars. Now this image isn't used elsewhere in scripture in this way. But John tells us in that verse we read before, verse 20, that these are the angels or messengers to the church. Again, revelation is there to be understood. If there's tricky bits, John actually helps us out, which is really, really helpful. John wants us to understand this. So here we see that Jesus holds these messengers safe in his hand. And then we see that his mouth becomes like a sharp two-edged sword. In Isaiah 11, the stump of Jesse has a rod coming out of his mouth to rule. It's self-reference back to Psalm 2 where the promised anointed one, the Christ, the Son of God, will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Similarly, the mouth of the servant in Isaiah 49, the one in whom God is glorified, has a mouth like a sword. It's showing us that Christ rules, not by a sword, but by his word. That is how it goes forward, that's how he rules. And then lastly we're told, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Well in Isaiah 60, as well as at the end of Revelation, the Lord himself is said to be our source of light, like the sun. There could also be hints back to Jesus' transfiguration, where he shone before his disciples. Again, the idea of glory is in mind there. So that's a lot of information, I know, but that's basically what John is doing. Do you see what he's doing? He's not told us really anything that we don't know already from the New Testament. It's all information that we've seen. But he's telling it to us in a wonderful and vivid way, weaving together imagery from the Old Testament. Nothing we've looked at so far as requires anything outside the Bible. All we've done is just looked at the Old Testament. Uh, it requires a bit of knowledge of what was going on there, or, or in uh, most cases, the Bible with cross-references is quite helpful. You've got those ones that sort of point you to the different parts of the Bible. But this is what John is going to do throughout, combining pictures and language from the Old Testament to show us New Testament truth. And this was an accepted and established style of writing at the time. There are other apocalypses that appear before John's, just as there are others who wrote gospels and letters to churches. It doesn't mean all of them are scripture, but it means that there's a genre, there's a, a, a way of writing these things. Like now we have crime and fantasy and lit. I discovered. But all these things follow certain conventions, they all sort of follow certain patterns, well, here is a gospel, but in the form of an apocalypse. It's just in a different style of writing, and John does tell us things in plain language too to help us out as we go through. So, look at verse five, which Kyle read to us other before. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's telling us stuff that he's sort of going to explain in the pictures, but he's just having us it plainly sometimes. <coughs> Jesus loves us. He paid the price to rescue us, to redeem us by his blood. Now there are Old Testament echoes there with the Exodus and the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb that sets his people free. But we understand it a bit more easily, we're a bit more used to those terms, aren't we? He refers to in verse 7 as <laughs> the thing who is coming, we know that, don't we? Whom every eye will see. And there he's alluding back to Zechariah. He talks of those who have pierced him and will wail. If you want to understand Zechariah better, we'll wait a couple of weeks until Steve preaches from Zechariah. But that's what he's doing, he's pointing us back to those passages. And we see now that all those things in the Old Testament, all those things that seemed a bit confusing, they're actually there to point us to Jesus. So that should help us not only read Revelation, but it should help us read our Old Testament too. And that's our second point, from the triune God. It's there to help us understand God, so it's a revelation of Jesus Christ from the triune God. Let me read to you uh, verse (coughs) 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the king's of the earth. One of the other things we're going to see as we go through Revelation is that people have said it's got the clearest Trinitarian theology of any book of the Bible. In other words, Revelation shows us the Trinity more clearly than any other book, which given it is its position at the end of the Bible, uh, you'd sort of expect, wouldn't you? As, As well as being an apocalypse, it also turns out it's a letter, he's actually writing it to people. A letter that starts off with a salutation of grace and peace, like most of the other New Testament letters. But then he sort of goes off into his apocalyptic language again. From one who was, and is, and is to come. Who is it talking about there? Well, initially there, it's talking about God the Father. It's talking about God the Father. The phrase is repeated in verse 8, along with the titles, Lord God, the Almighty, the Alpha and Omega who was and is and is to come. Now in this case, it's talking about God the Father. <coughs> the, uh, the, who was and is and is to come. If you put that in the first person, if you make it as though God is speaking it, eh? it becomes I am, I was, I will be. And in the Greek, apparently, I've checked it out this week, sort of stands out like a sore thumb. It's a wordplay on God's name from Exodus. I am, Yahweh, the Lord." Which is what he calls him, Lord God. Lord there would be God's name too, as as Greek speakers used it in place of God's name. This is the Lord, the Almighty. That word Almighty is the Greek version of El Shaddai, the mighty one, the powerful one. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. At the beginning there was already God, and at the end there is God. He's all in all, all the way through. Wonderfully and amazingly, right at the end of Revelation, you'll find those words on the lips of Jesus as well, describing himself. Revelation 22, 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming, says Jesus, soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He already calls himself the first and the last in verse 17, as we've already seen, so it is God the Father here, but we're not saying then that Jesus is somehow a sort of secondary God. Actually, he can claim the same titles. He is true God. He is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and Omega. All those things apply to him too, but here it seems to be focusing on the Father to start with. The second one listed in the salutation is the Holy Spirit. Now we see him there described as the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, in some translations, it's translated the sevenfold spirits, but it is literally the seven spirits. It's the same sentence construction as the seven churches earlier in the verse. And this is where we begin to see that if we take the sevens in Revelation 2 literally, we start ending up with problems. There are not seven holy spirits, otherwise, it would be the. Um, I, I put the wrong number here, I put Octinity. Op, But it would be non-in, you know the word, to do with nine, Nine ninefold, rather than three. And that just isn't right, is it? But it's to do with the way that numbers are used in Revelation. Seven in Revelation usually has to do with perfection, or completeness, or holiness. So for example, if we take it from the Old Testament, Genesis 2, verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it God had rested from his work that he had done in creation. The seventh one there is holy. And it means that the week is complete. Creation is done. So translating the apocalyptic language as we did with Jesus before. The seven spirits becomes the perfect spirit. The complete spirit. Or the holy spirit. It's just another way of talking about him. New Testament truths, Old Testament language. And then finally in that salutation we see the Son, Jesus Christ. And we're told three things about him. He's the faithful witness, literally the faithful martyr, but that word, as we understand it, will take on that meaning a bit later on. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first fruits of those risen and lord of them. And he is ruler of the kings of the earth. Which means, as John writes, Christ rules now. He's not the future ruler of the kings of the earth. As John writes, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that means, as we read through Revelation, it's actually the Lord Jesus who is driving the action. He's the one who's in control. And it's the Lord Jesus who's giving this vision to John. But the whole of the Trinity is involved here. John is in the spirit, it says, as he's writing this. It's the message the Father wants us to hear. This is the Father's plan, and it's the Son who's speaking it to John. So all of them are involved. It's from the triune God. And then our last point. It's to the church. It's to the church. Have a look at verses 9 to 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. We'll look at this more next week, um, as we look at the letters to the seven churches, but it's interesting to note that this letter had original recipients, seven churches in modern day Turkey. Now, these are them uh, there, that's sort of the edge of of Turkey as you uh, go into the Adriatic uh, Sea. But all of them were were in Asia, that's the name of that province, it wasn't the whole continent of that one, it was just the neighbour part of what we now call Turkey. And they're the seven churches that he's writing to. And it's worth noting that even within the Bible, we have more than seven churches that we know about in that area. So for example, we have Colossians <coughs> in that area, and Troas is in that area, ones that are quite, seen quite a bit in Acts and in the letters. So John is not writing to all the churches that they are, or even the biggest churches uh, that they are. But here we're given seven. And seven here is a literal number. He writes to seven churches, he names them. It's a literal number, but it's not a random number. We'll deal with it in more depth next week, but for now, let's say the significance of these churches goes beyond the then and there. And for now, we'll just see some things that we share with them as he writes to them. So we share their status. In verse six, we're told that they are a kingdom and priests to God. And we too share their status. We too are a kingdom and priests and believers. Now some translations have kings and priests. But it's more likely kingdom, given that John says that he's their partner in the kingdom. Though it is true that we rule with Christ, as you read through Revelation. So there could be that kingly sort of aspect to it. But it's also an Old Testament echo again. And we should expect this now, shouldn't we, as we go through. By the way, if you were interested... 404 verses in Revelation, they reckon at least 400 allusions to the Old Testament out of 404 verses. To put that in context, all of Paul's letters, 200 references. So there's more probably in Revelation than there are in the rest of the New Testament put together. So we're going to get this a lot as we go through, but this is, as you'd expect, an Old Testament reference. And this one is to Exodus. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God was telling the Israelites there that they would be his, his treasured possession. And now he extends this to the whole church. Just the same with language of one Peter, when he uses really similar phrases. There to be his kingdom with him on the throne. His kingdom, but a kingdom of priests going out into the world, mediating the, the blessings of God to the earth. Serving God and offering spiritual sacrifices to him. And that goes for us too now as New Testament believers. We are a kingdom of priests. We bring our lives as living sacrifices to our God, laying our lives before his throne, bowing the knee to him. We share that status with them. We also share in each other's troubles. John says as he writes to them uh, in verse 9 that he is their partner in the tribulation. He's a co-owner of something, a sharer in something. Partnership is one of our big words, isn't it, for this year? Partnership together. Well, here it is again. Sharing something with them. But here he's sharing, he's a partner in the tribulation. Now some translations just have it partner in tribulation. But it does have the the there. That means that it's the same phrase used throughout the rest of the book. Again, this will be continued as we go through the series, but John says he's in the tribulation. He's a partner in the tribulation with them. But at the very least we can say that John is having a tough time exiled to the island of Patmos for testifying to Jesus. It wasn't uncommon for the Romans to send troublemakers to random islands to spare them the trouble of having to secure permission to execute them. We sort of used to do it with Australia. um, But don't tell Australians that they don't like it. But sort of sending them away, if they're troublemakers. That's what they were doing here. And John is finding it tough. And apparently these churches are too. We'll see next time that they have been having a hard time. Some of them have been killed. Some of them have been rejected by their families. But is saying, I'm a partner in this, actually. I'm with you in it. And he knows the patient endurance they must have in those circumstances. He says he's a partner in that. He's going through it too. And this in a big way is why God has sent John this vision to encourage a church where people are finding it hard. The vision was given to sustain Christians through tough times. That's part of what he's doing. Now, some of the churches, as we'll see, weren't finding it that hard. But they needed to hear this message too. Easy times don't continue forever. Challenges change, but they don't go away completely. But John is saying that he is with them through this. He is their partner through this. But do you notice, he doesn't just consider himself their partner... In verse 9, I, John, your brother. He considers himself their brother. He's their brother in these things. He's not just writing to partners. He's writing to family. To brothers and sisters. Amazing others keeps coming up, doesn't it, through the Bible. We are family, he's saying as believers. Along with John. And a family that shares in one another's troubles. In one another's difficulties, in our trials. So we can share in that together. And we share that with these Old Testament, the New Testament believers. But we can also share in their blessing. I've had it read to us before this morning already, verse three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. As he writes this, he wants the hearers, the readers, to be blessed by what he writes. Reading it aloud was a service to the church where many couldn't read for themselves in those days. It was a way for everybody to hear the word of God. The ones who read it out loud are blessed, says John. But also the ones who hear it and keep it. And we can be blessed along with those original hearers and readers. We can hear this and keep it. We can take it to heart. And it's an urgent message, says John. Why? Because, he says, the time is near. It's almost a throwaway phrase when it says, John says he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. That term could mean Sunday, and the early church used it uh, that way, it started to. But in the rest of the Bible, that phrase isn't there, the Lord's day. The closest we get to it is the day of the Lord. (coughs) The last day, the end. It's not the exact phrase that you get when it's translated in other parts of the New Testament. But it could carry that idea with it as well. Certainly given the context of what we're hearing about. If he's in the spirit on the day of the Lord, that adds a bit of urgency to what he's saying, doesn't it? He says the time is at hand. The last days are here, so we need to read and heed. And if we read and heed, John says... Will be blessed. So, what does Jesus want them to hear? Verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Fear not, says Jesus. Again, it's amazing how much that keeps turning up, isn't it? Fear not. When John was just chopped down so scared that he looks like he's dead. Fear not, says Jesus, and again not without reason. I am the first and the last, says Jesus. I am the living one. The one who holds you safe in my hand. I'm also the one who's victorious through trials and has risen at the end. I've been through the great tribulation and I now have the keys of death and Hades. So don't fear, says Jesus, even if it comes to death. I hold the keys of death, says Jesus. So he's going to encourage the churches that even though it is tough, in the midst of all of this, they need to cling to Jesus, the risen one, the victorious one, the one who was overcome, as we'll see. And that's what we need to do too. We'll see this more over the coming weeks, but that's what we need to do, cling to that vision of the Lord Jesus, the risen one, the mighty one, who is able to help in our time of need. So whilst revelation is difficult to understand, hopefully there are some things that we can take from it. And hopefully it's beginning to feel slightly, just slightly less difficult. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ from the triune God to the church. So let's pray that God will help us to read it and heed it And be blessed as we see the Lord Jesus Christ. fresh. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that he didn't stay dead in the tomb. Father, thank you that he rose again and he now reigns in glory. Father, we pray as we see this incredible vision of the Lord Jesus. Father, pray that it would cause us to turn to him. Father, in our hour of need, Father, pray that as we find things difficult and tough, Father, pray that we would remember that he is the risen one. Father, that he is the one who has overcome. He's the one who's been through trials and yet has been victorious. Father, help us to look to him and keep going. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.